Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Matthew Dickerson. Hey, Matthew, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. Saturdays and 3 p.m. Tuesdays on 101.9 FM, KVSH. You can learn more about the show at voiceofvashon.org or visit my website, marchtwisdale.com, to catch up on shows you've missed. And thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to dive right in because we have plenty to talk about. Matt, could you get us started by um, giving our listeners a little bit of a background of who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a writer. I also teach at Middlebury College in Vermont, which is where I live. I write what's about what's important to me and what I'm currently interested in, so I've written in a lot of different genres. A couple published medieval historical novels set in mid-7th century Northern Europe. Oh, I've wow. Written, I've written a number of books about J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, especially exploring uh, environmental aspects of their writing. Thank you. Thank you for that. was perfect. There's no way I could have um, said all of that so smoothly because that's a lot. So I'm looking here at the first book in your fictional series, which you sent out to me. Thank you very much. You can drop by the Vashon Bookshop and take a look at this book, The Gifted. It'll be on display by the Comfy Couch. So I would love it if you could for a couple of minutes. Um, I think a lot of people have a, have a very, um, a sort of superficial, and this isn't a negative word, but I mean a superficial, rough sense of the medieval times and placing it within the fall of the Roman Empire and the growth of the Catholic Church and the Enlightenment comes so much later. Right. Can you just tell us for a couple of minutes a little bit about what were the issues people were responding to and grappling with as far as what had fallen apart and what they were doing to survive in the interim? Yeah. I mean, just give us a sense. Well, uh, in terms of what people were doing, I think just trying to get enough food to eat would mm-hmm. capture the lives of the vast majority of people living in England or Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. When my novel is set, is the end of the Merovingian dynasty. So oh, yes, okay. The, the Germanic tribes have swept across Gaul. They have driven the Romans out. Mm-hmm. They had a sort of, you know, I would say a thriving empire, but as that passed on to gener- you know, the next generation and the kingdom got divided, there was bickering within the royal, you know, the ruling families, the, the kingdom was divided, you have all, all sorts of other people vying for power. And so you've got, you know, more, more tribes, more outside forces, as well as internal strife. So that's part of what's going on in in what we would now call France. Mm. Um, Further to the north, you have the Danes really just beginning to rise to power, what we would later, you know, come to know as the Viking era. Uh, Right, I was going to say, the Vikings are coming in there somewhere. And and the Danes, a lot of their power was rooted in, in the ability to foster and control trade. Is that correct? Yes. Well, and yeah, they were you know they were great shipmakers, so they, right. they would control the seas, and right. you know, as the Vikings rose to power, they were very effective at being able to attack coastal towns and getting them out quickly, um, mm-hmm. and eventually get powerful enough to get in and, and just settle there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I visited Denmark last year in June and went up to the castle that Hamlet is based upon. Mm-hmm. So um, very and cool. 
Yeah, and and it was, and then right across the water was the keep or the castle in yeah. Sweden, and the two of them had their cannons facing each other, not to attack mm. each other, but any boat that tried to go through, through the middle, right? Without right. paying their taxes properly, would yeah. just be blown out of the water. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It was. Oh gosh. Okay. 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 Well, I'm going to have to get those books. <laughs> yeah, Could... the, the root, the root and the torque is the most recent one, and that's more rooted in in the particular historical moment. It's it really only spans about uh, two years or a year mm-hmm. and a half. Um, the earlier novel is called The Finsburg Encounter. That's now out of print. That was actually published in the early '90s, and that was more based on, although it's an historical novel, it was based on a the Finn episode of a Finn story within Beowulf. So I was trying oh. to catch that little bit, that little hint of a story that the poet and Beowulf retells. Mm-hmm. And my goal as a novelist was to sort of retell that story imaginatively, to set that story in a particular moment of real history. To make it real, though. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I, I have yes. people who will come in and sit down in the little chair next to the yeah. bright window and literally, like, read through the books of my authors. So, right. um let, let's talk a little bit about your publishing adventure that you had, though. Sure. So The Gifted Here, folks, is, a, is just a beautiful book. And apparently, Matt's, so you had a publisher. They loved your work. They knew you were doing a series, obviously, because this book literally ends with people wanting to know exactly what's going to happen next. Correct. And then the publishing company had an internal squabble and sort of went kaput on their fiction line. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not sure eternal squabble is the, is the right word. I think mm. their their entire fiction line was just not doing very well. It was right. not making money. They they had young adult fiction that was doing well, mm-hmm. but they were investing, I, I guess, investing energy in, into fiction and, and including fantasy literature, and it was just not making money for them. Right. They signed me for the whole three volume novel. Mm-hmm. But um, about the time the first volume was coming out, they had made the decision internally that they were going to be getting out of the fiction line, and Mm. it did not make any sense for them to spend money marketing my book, promoting my book, if they knew they were just going to cancel the whole line. Oh, so even your first book, which sold out, they basically sort of um, under-promoted it. They told me afterwards they had $0 marketing budget. Yeah, gotcha. Right, so it was it was announced on their publisher's website. It was announced, but there was not a single advertising. There was no advertising right, dollar, right. no marketing right. dollar, nothing done to promote the book. It still sold out. Yeah, congratulations. But um, nine months later, when everything was ready in the second volume and it was all set to go into print, mm-hmm. the publisher told me that they were not going to print it, that they were canceling the series, and it wasn't my book that they were canceling was actually the whole fiction line. Right. The vice president was fired and my editor was fired. Oh. And so, then at the, the, this was, gets interesting. So so I just, I have a mixed variety of folks out there who listen to the show. And um, some of you are familiar with the pitfalls and the hairy, scary aspects of publishing that authors face on a regular basis. And some of you are not. So get this. This next piece is really interesting. So so this so far makes sense. This is like, okay, it's a business decision, blah, blah, blah. But then tell our listeners what happened when you talked to other publishers who liked the series and would have liked to have published it. What happened next? Yeah, my editor, my editor who was, you know, fired along with the canceling of this line, um, put me in touch with a couple other editors. I sent my work to them. And, um, you know, one, one acquisitions editor for another publisher 
really liked the book, liked my writing. She was actually aware of some other writing I had done. And I guess she brought it to the the um, publicity people, the marketing people, the publisher, and they mm-hmm. said, no, we can't, we can't pick up a series that's already been started midstream. Mm-hmm. We would need to have control over the whole series before we could publish it. So they, they would not publish books two and three, mm-hmm. having not been the publisher for book one. They right. said it's just impossible for them to market it. So the only option if I wanted to go with them, would, I guess, would have been to buy out all the remaining copies of book one and burned them, destroyed them, shredded them, mm-hmm. and then started over with the new publisher. So that right. would have been, well, it didn't make any sense to me, and it would have been a lot more money than I currently had Right, right. to buy the whole warehouse of, of the second printing of the books. Right. Um, and, then I, and then I heard from another publisher who said the same thing. This other publisher was more blunt. He said, there will be no, you will not find a single publisher who will be able to take up the series midstream. Right. So imagine... So my only options were to self-publish books two and three mm-hmm. or spend money that I didn't have buying all the remaining copies of book one and, de- and destroying them and shredding them. Right. So, so I think it's really... I really like it when my reader audience can have a little bit of empathy for some of the... Just how... Um, complicated, intense, and challenging it can be to get that book into your hands. You know, we get a book off the shelf and we think, oh, someone wrote it and then it was good and someone published it and yay, it was an easy process. But literally, if you here you are, you did everything right, successful book, sold out its first printing, which trust me, folks, a lot of books never do that. Um, And then through no fault of your own, you're left in a situation where your series is orphaned and no one will pick it up and you've now had to self-publish as a result. Like I never would have imagined that the publishing world would refuse to pick up a successful series. Right, but I mean, I can understand, you know, for example, how difficult it is for them to market books two and three when they're not the ones selling book one. They can't. They could never do a package deal. For example, they can't say buy all three right. of these books together. I think is some of the issues. Now that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, right? Once we get into the nitty-gritty, it starts to make a little bit more sense, but still, yeah. what a shock. That's the other thing. We won't get into that today, but you know, then authors, once you sell a book to the publishing company, you lose your own rights to it in a lot of ways. And yeah, yeah so this is a big, complicated career that people choose when they become writers, and there's a lot that goes into it. And I had spent um, six years writing this three-volume novel. <sighs> <laughs> and you know, and, and I've spent a couple more years in in kind of the polishing and revising of oh. the prose. Um, oh. So, yeah. I, I, and I had readers. You know, I, I had not hundreds of thousands, but a couple thousand readers who mm-hmm. read volume one. And it didn't really seem fair to me to leave those readers hanging forever. But and and uh, goodness gracious, all those years you of course of course. Yes. My books about. Tolkien and fantasy literature, for example, I have a book titled From Homer to Harry Potter, A Handbook of Myth and Fantasy. And it's it's a look at um, the whole creative genre of mythopoeic literature, really dating from um, great Greek myths all the way through the medieval romance, through 19th century fairy tale, through Mm -hmm. 20th and 21st century fantasy literature. Mm -hmm. But that success with that book doesn't at all translate to anybody picking up my book, uh, Trout in the Desert. Yeah, right, of course. <laughs> you know, so I guess the good part is I, I think I connect with a broader audience. I think my writing about 
trout and ecology has made me a better fantasy writer. Mm. I'm more aware in my fantasy works of the flora and the fauna. I'm more aware of mm-hmm. what a, how a tree would grow by a river and what sorts of birds would be there and what they would be eating. And I think it gives a, a deeper reality and more beauty to my fantasy writing than mm-hmm. I, that I know how to write carefully about a trout stream. Yeah. And, then, and I think it helps me, it makes writing more enjoyable for me, but it certainly does not help much in the marketing. Well, what's super awesome, though, is that you're living your life passionately and you're pursuing your interests, and that's, that's a, a life well lived. I hope so. Yeah, well, I hope so, too. So everyone who wants to take a look at Matt's work, his wide and diverse array of work out there, can go to matthewdickerson.net. Um, Matthew is spelled normally, and Dickerson is D-I-C-K-E-R-S-O-N, which I think is pretty normal, too, dot net, folks. And um, and you can see um, a lot of his books there and, and peruse through them. Let's see. So you teach at Middlebury College in Vermont, but you also taught high school students. Does that mean you taught in high school or just classes for no, young people? I, um I have been since the early 1990s teaching creative writing at the New England Young Writers Conference at Breadloaf. Oh. So it is a creative writing conference, just a four-day conference for high school students. Mm-hmm. After my first novel was published, I think around 1991, I got invited to, do, to begin teaching some creative writing. Mm-hmm. And about 10 years later, I actually was named the director of that conference. So for another 11 years, I directed the New England Young Writers Conference. Oh my goodness, that's that's a lot to do. I mean, because directing means basically you're like the event organizer. Yes, I'm. My primary responsibility was was not just leading the committee, but also ultimately responsible for the staffing of the conference. Okay, I didn't, right. I didn't do that as a dictator. We we really made decisions as a committee, but right. ultimately I'm the one who sort of you know had to take responsibility for what writers we brought in to teach mm-hmm. these high school students. Mm-hmm. So we want people who are who are known as, as excellent writers, but it was also important that they are writers who could communicate to a high school audience. Right. It's geared towards students at the very end of their high school junior okay. year. Right. We would occasionally get some seniors and occasionally some sophomores, but mm-hmm. the vast majority are juniors. And it's around 200 high school students who come every year and another... Um, about 75 adults at the conference, either chaperones mm-hmm. or writers who are there teaching or people on the committee helping to run it. You know, I think that's just brilliant. I, I have, um, over here we've got um, Centrum um, up in Port Townsend, and that's a pretty well-known, you know, writers conference. Mm-hmm. And I went one year, and of course it's all adults, basically. Yeah. And I am so glad that you're doing something for youth Um well, recently there was sort of some issues that were going on. Um, some classism was showing up in my community and reminded me of that wonderful book, The Outsiders, yep. written by, I think it's a S.E. Hinton. Um, well, S.E. Hinton is not a man, even though the book is all about pretty much young men yeah. and classism and the haves and the have-nots and the greasers and the socias and all that. It was written by a not not even just a woman, but a girl around the age of 16 and 17. And then there's um, that wonderful dragon series written by a young man, and he started when he was 15 years old. What's that dragon series? Super popular. Aragon. Yeah. Man, there is some amazing work being produced by young people. Actually, what's really exciting, because this conference is now about 30 years old, 
is that we are now getting writers teaching at the conference who have been really um, you know, successful writers who went to the conference 10 years ago or 15 years ago mm-hmm. and are now coming back and teaching at it. Aww. Which is exciting. And they're going to be actually really good. Another creative writing conference this fall up in Alaska, which I think is actually closer to you than Vermont is. Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's like so far up there. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. This October, I'm teaching at a creative writing conference called the Northern Pen. Oh, cool name. <laughs> yeah, that'll bring bring some young writers into Alaska in October. Right. Oh, wow. Look out for the mosquitoes. Yeah, October, I think we're pretty safe. But I think I think in June, I would probably not want to bring anybody out into the woods yeah. of Alaska in June. Yeah, I mean, what, what are they? My girlfriend's from Alaska, and they jokingly say that the mosquito is the um, the state bird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been in the bush in Alaska before. When um, I came off a, a river, a gravel bar, where the co- breeze kept all the mosquitoes off, so mm-hmm. I would be on the gravel bar most of the day and not see a single mosquito. But then I would walk into the bush beside the river, and it was like walking into an uh, an airport or a runway. Mm-hmm. You'd get closer and closer to the bushes, and you'd begin to hear this louder and louder hum, and then the hum would turn into a roar, and I'd be looking into the sky expecting an airplane to fly overhead any moment oh and realize gosh. it was the mosquitoes. And you're like probably heading into the bush to maybe use the restroom or something. I was not going to tell you why I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and you're like, oh my gosh, no. Right. Oh, yeah. I love that story. <laughs> okay. All right. So, all right, folks. And so now if everyone's cringing as they're imagining, you know, walking into a cloud of bloodsuckers, um, why don't we uh, shift directions a little bit? But first I'm going to do a station identification. Hi, everybody. If you're just joining us, this is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And as you can tell, I'm having a wonderful time talking with Matthew Dickerson, who is the author of many books. Um, and we're going to get right back to the interview after I give a shout out to some of the folks that make Voice of Vashon possible. Support for this program comes from Vashon Center for the Arts. A center for the arts on Vashon Island, VCA, provides quality arts experiences for all ages and creates creates opportunities for artists to perform and exhibit their work. Find out what's happening at VashonCenterForTheArts.org. Support for this program also comes from the Vashon Loop, Islanders' alternative newspaper offering free news, information, arts, and entertainment from, quote, the people since 2001. It's your chance to get into the loop at VashonLoop.com. And, alrighty, so... Yeah, okay, we'll just sort of leave that imagery behind. And uh, let's see here. So we should talk about what I read briefly. Can we talk about what I read briefly? Absolutely, go for it. Um, I know, I know, isn't that weird that writers are actually also readers? Go figure. Yeah, I, I want to be constantly reading. I want to read the best writers of many different genres because I have written about fantasy literature and I've written a fantasy novel. People are always recommending fantasy, you know, new fantasy series to me. Right. Um, and and actually, I, I do occasionally read them, but uh, it's it's not my primary reading um, genre. Mm-hmm. I, tr- I, I try to regularly read really good poets. I mm. love the, the, um, the beauty and the precision and the sparsity of their language. And I try to learn from good poetry writers. 
how to work better in imagery. Actually, one of my favorite poets oh, is yeah. not from, from not far away from you. Maybe you've crossed your path. Is Lucy Shaw? I've heard the name. Yeah. I've regularly read Lucy Shaw's poetry. Um, there's a wonderful novelist down in the Portland area. Actually, I think in Salem or Kaiser. Um, there's a novelist and short story writer, Gina Oshner. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently reading her newest novel, set in Latvia. Ooh. Um, it's it's called The Hidden Letters of Velta B. And her previous novel I really loved, um, The Russian Dream Book of Color and Flight. Um, and there's another Seattle-area writer who does write fantasy literature, and he's one of the one of the few really recent fantasy authors that I have, have really loved, just as a wonderful writer. Jeffrey Overstreet has a four-volume series called Aurelia's Colors. That's interesting. I know a Jeff Overstreet. I think Jeff on, Overstreet. On Facebook, it might be the same person then. Yeah. I mean, there's so many shared yeah. names out there. Okay. Interesting. Jeffrey Overstreet is actually what he goes by. Right. And what, did it, what was the title again? Aurelia's Colors. A-U-R-A-L-I-A. Oh. Apostrophe S. And what's it about? Wow. Uh, that's hard. Always hard to answer with with uh-huh. a novel. It's it's a fantasy novel. It is or a four volume fantasy novel. It's set in um an imagined world. It has a political dimension, mm-hmm. um, and a dimension of enchantment. Uh, but I think it's it's really about the characters. Mm-hmm. Just fascinating, compelling characters that you care about and maybe judge in a certain way initially and then get to know them and mm-hmm. your perspectives change. You know, that, 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 that makes me, I'm starting to think now a little bit about my own reading habits. And I think um, reading habits, once you shift into actively being um, a writer, and I mean like, like I'm actively working on a novel and I've got a short story series. So, so once I shifted into creating it shifted or changed how I was as a reader because before I read um, fantasy fiction um, sci-fi and of course a million scientific and political and also there's that whole side of me the the science political type of side but I would read just for escape and recreation and relaxation and and just you know that that was it and now and none of those things are bad at all I no think, those, I think are those are all really legitimate reasons to read i think literature can do that for us it yes. ought to do that for us and it's a wonderful benefit of literature oh absolutely I mean, are you kidding i mean yeah. i moved so much as a child that like yeah. my best friends were characters and books that i carried with me every time i moved every six right. to nine months and yes. you know you show up as a 11 year old a nine year old whatever you're not going to make friends super fast and yeah. as a new kid halfway through the school year so you go home and you can grab that book on the shelf and spend three hours with a really great character who's fabulous. Who's your friend? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, but now that you're a writer, oh my gosh, it's it's changing how I read. Uh-huh. And one of the ways it's changed how I read is that I'll notice a way or a method or an approach that a writer has taken to a story, which I wouldn't have noticed it in quite uh, a right. You know exactly. And I'll go, oh, ooh, ooh, that works so well. Ooh, maybe yeah. I can incorporate that into how I'm addressing something. And it, it is sort of like um, opening treasure boxes of ideas. Yeah, yeah that's a great, that's a great uh, metaphor. Yeah. 
I was a little worried that I would lose my ability to relax and that I would become too analytical or judgmental or something. And that hasn't happened. Have you ever read a book that literally seems to just go scene by scene, real small scenes? Yes. I was thinking when you were saying that, I was thinking of the uh, the writings of Diane Glancy. She does that too? Yeah, she has in at least a couple books. She she does a lot of bringing historical characters, particularly... um, Females, particularly Native American females, they're bringing their stories to life, oh. um, whether it's her novel of, the, of Sacagawea or, um, you know, that's, that's one that just popped to mind, mm-hmm. um, or her retelling of the Trail of Tears. Mm. She has uh, written with sort of very short, almost one, one or two page mm-hmm. chapter scenes, just one dialogue, one dialogue that's two and a half pages long. Ooh, The Color Purple. Yeah. That did the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's something really viscerally emotional about that because a chapter has sort of the, when you get to the end of a chapter, even if it's a cliffhanger, which it should be, you still get a feeling of, of almost like conclusion and you, you know, it has a sense of like you're being told a story. Uh There was something about the scene orientation of this narrative that just kept you riveted in the emotional energy of the story. I don't know. It was really cool. So the last two novels I read before starting um, Gina Oshner's Hidden Letters of Delta B mm-hmm. were old, much were older pieces. I had never read Dickens' The Pickwick Papers. Oh, my. I haven't either. And, <laughs> and I, someone had been recommending that to me for quite a while, another Vermont author, actually. Uh-huh. And uh, I, that, was, that was my reading. I began around Christmas, and it's about 900 pages, so it took me a little while to get through that. I bet. And before that um, was uh, Stegner's, Wallace Stegner's novel, um, Crossing to Safety. What's that about? Um, you know, it is about... Immigration? Well, no, it's actually about, it's about some, a friendship, I guess, a friendship mm. of two couples and told in flashbacks as this one very dominant figure is in her last days dying of cancer and they're all mm. gathering together around her and oh. the main characters the main character is remembering their lives together and their friendship oh what together. a beautiful title crossing to safety yeah it's a very beautiful story it's, it's gorgeous prose um, oh. and i would imagine a really to. good message too for people who are facing um the, that transition yeah yeah, I think I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm, I would I'll always be hesitant to give a book like that to somebody who's in the middle of going through it. Right. You know. Yeah, it could just <laughs> of be any a, type. A little right. too raw. Yes. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, that was fun. I, I don't um, always have a chance with my authors to actually chat about what we're reading. Yeah. But um, now, so folks out there who are listening, um, if you are driving and um, are inspired by some of these book ideas, and now you're going, no, no, I didn't catch that name. Don't worry, because, you know, you can go to my website, marchtwisdell.com, and you can just select the show, and it's really easy to scroll up and down and and just re-listen and um, catch those names if you want. So um, it's also a great way to share with folks who don't live in this area who can't catch the show on the air. So you came to Vashon. Um, yeah, last fall or spring? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, December, I mean, January. Okay, okay, right. 
And I missed you. It, it, the way I found out about you was because I um I saw the article in our local paper, and then I I eagerly looked for the date, and it was the day before. Yeah, which is too late to to do. Yeah, and I was it's really like, hard. I missed them. <laughs> so uh, meaning it was the day before you had been here the day before. Right. Yeah. 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 And so yeah, I'm it's like, always always too late to go back and see, see something the day after it happened. I know, right? Isn't that weird? Anyways, science okay. fiction sometimes allows that. But. Oh yeah, see, there you go. We need to create yeah. like a little warp zone yep. here on Vashon. So um, you're coming back again to Vashon. You know, I'm going to be in the area. I have a couple speaking trips engaged. Mm-hmm. Portland in Oregon and up in British Columbia with several days in the middle. So mm-hmm. it, it actually, I, I don't know that there's a date nailed down yet, mm-hmm. but it seems very likely that I will make a reappearance on your lovely island yeah. sometime in late January or early February. Okay. So, and now you have your, the third book of the series is coming out in um, the summer. Is is it going to, do you have another book coming out like January, February, that you're actually traveling to promote? No, um, I have got invited to speak based on some of my earlier books. Okay. okay. I think what I get invited to speak on most often is my work on Tolkien's environmentalism or his environmental right. vision or ways that his ideas about ecology and human care for the for the world are expressed in his fantastic writings. Yeah, so let's actually dive into that, because that, I mean, I am a massive Tolkien fan, like many people are, was probably reading, well, I grew up as a little girl, like around four and five, we had one of those little plastic, um, what are the, you know, the vinyl albums, and but yes. it was like little yeah, plastic thingies, Yeah. and yeah, and, I, and there was the little book, the little picture book, and it was the cartoon image. And you would put the little record on there and play it, and you'd turn the pages as the little story was, you know, read out to you. So from an early age, I've been taken in Tolkien. Tell us a little bit about this whole in, um, intentional environmental aspect that he brought to his his worlds. Well, I'd been, you know, first reading reading Tolkien, and then um, in graduate school when I was studying Old English Language and Literature, I was actually studying under an English professor at Cornell who had gone to Oxford um, and, you know, known Tolkien personally. <clears throat> and as a graduate student at Cornell, I actually co-taught a class with them. That was the, my first experience teaching literature was co-teaching a class on fantasy and horror. With who exactly? With hmm? With who exactly? His name was Robert Farrell. He's got passed it. away since then. Okay. But Robert Farrell was a Tolkien scholar. He had yeah. gone to Oxford. He was, um, he, I think he had three appointments at Cornell. One was in archaeology, one was in medieval studies, and one was in the English department. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started studying Old English with him, and then we have a lot of conversations about his memories of, of Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And around my third year of graduate school, he invited me to teach a class with him. He taught the horror literature part of the class on Stephen King, and I think we read Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, my. And then I taught the part of the class on Tolkien. So I have been thinking and writing about Tolkien deeply for for 20 years, and at some point I was beginning to read um, some of the traditional 
environmental writers, agrarian writers, nature writers that have been very important, including uh, reading a lot of Wendell Berry, reading Aldo Leopold, not just the Sand County Almanac, but some of his earlier essays from when he was working as a in forestry in Arizona and New Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, people like Scott Sanders, and began realizing a lot of the ideas that they were really beginning to write about in the 80s and 90s or maybe the 70s were ideas that Tolkien was exploring and expressing in his fantasy literature. Um, And as it began to dig up, not just studying Tolkien's works more carefully, but began digging up some of his earlier letters and some of his earlier um, say, drafts, I began to realize that this was not sort of just accidental. It wasn't just verisimilitude, him trying to write good, accurate fiction, but that he was actually thinking very carefully about some of these things. I found one letter dating from 1930 where Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were talking about the importance of eating locally and how when a culture gives that up, how we become disconnected from the world around us, disconnected from the soil and from the land. Wow, and then they also that is made a so connection. Cool. Yeah, very cool. They also made a connection in 1930 between this sort of importance of eating locally with the sort of mythic fairy and fairy tale literature that would grow out of that sort of culture. And so it's, it's well now. Not... So hold on one second. So a lot of people now I find it interesting that they're talking about eating locally. So locally was the main focus. Obviously, eating like. I don't think the concept of organic would have been anywhere in their mind yet because that was post-World War II when we turned bomb-making materials, i.e. nitrogen, into um, a chemical that could promote or force plant growth to speed up. Okay, so... But in 1957, in another letter, mm -hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien was talking, uh, used the phrase militarized and industrialized agriculture. Right. So he, again, was already seeing how this new type of agriculture was ravaging and damaging to to nature to and to society, to cultures, as well as to the earth and the soil and the water. Right, right, right. So it's, he was the, consciously um, thinking about that, and that really ends right. up getting expressed really carefully in, in his works. It's not the central thing he's writing about. He's no. not an environmental writer or a nature writer, and yet... Thinking about those issues was, yeah. was profoundly um, profoundly impacted. Oh, absolutely. I mean, who you are as a writer always comes through pretty much right. in what you produce. So, so I, I just I always like to point that out because I've had um, I've I've run into people who will sort of make a. There are people who don't quite understand just how recent chemical agriculture is, right. and they forget they'll they'll look at um people who are interested in organic you know, growing and they'll sort of like, you know, snub their nose at that as if it's, you know, and I'm like, okay, but absolutely everything prior to World War II on planet Earth was organic growing. It's like the only thing that was an option. It's the only thing that existed. And I I like to sort of bring that up. So when he was talking about local, what really seemed to matter for him was probably the connection that people literally had with their food, as in you know the person growing it or you walk by it every day And now you've watched the blossoms grow into small green blobs that turn into big red apples. And and how does that, on a human level, affect us? Do you think that was their main focus, was the the way that people would feel connected to the earth around them? 
Yes, that, that certainly was was a big part of our focus. You know, I think as, as Tolkien was saying to Lewis, this is why we why we would see nymphs in the fountains and dryads in the woods, is because we really had a deep connection to the earth. It was alive to us. It was part of our life. Um, but I think the Tolkien at least did take even a few steps beyond that. So it wasn't just a sort of emotional connection to the land. Mm-hmm. But he also saw that when you begin to see the land merely as a commercial, uh, as something to exploit commercially, when when the connection to the earth changes in a way that you begin to have the larger scale agricultures that are necessary for a sort of export international food culture, then you end up with people not planting and growing food on a small piece of land that you can intimately know, but you need to start having much larger scale farms where the owner of the farm can't possibly know the landscapes and water and soil types of every acre of land. So what you see in the downfall of the Shire, for example, is Tolkien has explicitly points out that the beginning of the downfall of the Shire in The Lord of the Rings begins with Saruman working through Lotho to begin to create an industrialized agriculture where the food is not is no longer grown for the people of the Shire, but it's grown right. for commercial export. Right. And and Lotho begins to own large quantities of land that he can't possibly intimately know and care about. And because it's not the local land where he lives, he has no real motivation to care for the quality and the health of that land. Right. And so you get it, you do get real environmental degradation in the soil when you move away. So it's not only a sense of connectedness which you're talking about, mm-hmm. which I think is is really important, but beyond the sense of connectedness, there's actually the environmental degradation that happens to the land when you shift to that sort of um, large-scale commercial monocrop agriculture. Yeah, no, I think I'm that's that's not surprising, you know, that um, that they were recognizing the potential for that. I mean, obviously, there'd already been the famine in um, Ireland, where while millions of people were dying of starvation because of the potato blight, at the same time, the landed gentry were selling, um, I, I believe it was um, wheat and oats and certain food crops, were selling them off the island, you know, as an export crop and making profit off of them. So... You know, that's a, a great example of how. Right. And then we have um, uh, in the, there's an interesting, um, well, that was an article that I saw. It was talking about what's going on with um, the poor usually live in places that are most environmentally damaged, while the Absolutely. wealthy, uh, you know, they live three hours away in somewhere that's really beautiful and nice. And I think um, a lot of people don't know this, but um, so quick quiz for folks who are listening. What is the number one um, industrial source of pollution in the United States of America? I'll pause for a second for people to think about that. Okie doke. So what is the number one source of pollution in the United States as far as bulk waste pollution? And it is the pork industry. And while everyone's going to the store and buying their bacon and having their yummy breakfast, if you are one of those poor people who's unlucky enough to live in the vicinity of these huge, massive industrial pork um, farms, 
you smell the stench and they literally collect all of, you know, all of the waste products and, and pigs are big and they eat a lot of food and they use the bathroom a lot. And they collect all of that in these giant pools that they know, the industry knows, every two or three years a, there will be a flood and when the, yeah. Exactly. So if you're living in that area, you're not the owner who lives five states away. You know, when those floods come through, all of that pollution gets washed into the rivers, the streams, the creeks, the lakes, your backyard. Yep. The, the Shire, it was your backyard. You were growing in your backyard. You cared because your kids played in your backyard. But when one person is able to begin to own the land all across the Shire, then that right. all changes. Yeah. Because the person who's in, who's growing the food in that plot of land is no longer the person who's living on that plot of land. Right. It's somebody who lives far away and can afford to to do whatever they want to that land, ir- um, you know, regardless of the impact on the people who live there. Uh, yeah. You know, all of which, none of which, Tolkien really preaches at you. It's not an environmental tract. He's telling a compelling story. But it shows up. But the up. imagination that created that story mm-hmm. was deeply impacted by Tolkien's own experiences. And I think it shapes the imagination of the readers. I think it's very hard to find a human being on planet Earth who has read that story, who would, who does not view the Shire as it is originally presented as really a wonderful place to right. live. Tolkien and Lewis also both um, wrote extensively, again, a half a century before a lot of other people were addressing this, but about the devastation caused by deforestation. Deforestation in Middle Earth is profoundly connected to the evils of Sauron. And in both of C.S. Lewis's major works of fantasy, his three-volume series about ransom, that Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra, and That Hideous Strength, mm-hmm. and then his seven-volume Chronicles of Narnia series. In both of those series, interestingly enough, the downfall of society begins with the deforestation project. Well, now that's the, interesting. The wanton cutting of trees for either industrialization or for commercial export. Well, so in so you've got Saruman, who is yeah. the um, wizard who turns yeah. bad, and, of course, there's that heart rending period where he goes out and he starts cutting down all of the beautiful trees. And then you have what's interesting is that the Ents have um, sort of been fading away that, and and I I wonder what, I wonder what it was that that's an interesting piece. It's sort of like all of the forms of old magic through that trilogy are starting to fade away. I mean, the Ents, the, the, um, the elves leave, right? Sure. Yes. I mean, they're on their way out of middle earth. Right. They're departing Middle-earth. Yeah. I had five reasons for why I started the show Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And one of those five reasons was that I have this really strong belief that fiction writing in particular is very powerful as a mode of changing viewpoints in human perception because fiction affects our heart. You can read a nonfiction book about global warming, and it can be really disturbing and bothersome. But then if you read a fictional story that maybe brings to life the, um, you know, the bears that are living, that are dying, you know, in the Arctic, and you're crying, you know, five times during the book, and your, your chest is aching, that when we are affected emotionally, there's a memory and an impact that is permanent in our lives going right. forward. Yes, I, I, 
I would add an, another word to the word emotionally. I would say also imaginatively. Right. That our, our imaginations really shape very much how, how we think and, and how we behave. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe another example would be the difference between a hero who inspires your action and an abstract moral principle. Oh, you, I love you, that. You, yeah, you you may give you may sort of hear an abstract moral principle um, about how you ought to behave, mm-hmm. and you may sort of have intellectually agree with it, but it doesn't really stick with you. We don't go around, you know, thinking abstract moral principles. But if right. you have a hero, whether it's Frodo or Aragorn or Faramir or somebody else mm-hmm. who you want to aspire to, that that that's imaginatively grabbed you, not as a, an abstract principle, but as a is a real person that you that you love or care about or mm-hmm. or want to emulate. Right. So I think our heroes, who who our heroes are, impact how we behave more than abstractions. That's you just said it perfectly. I love that exactly. And so um, I think children who can access the Tolkien work and the C.S. Lewis work. I mean, you know, I. I always had a series of Narnia in my life. I've read all the books at least four or five times. And um, and as children, if we're lucky enough to grow up reading such deeply intentional um, work that gives us so many lessons and morals and great people to love and to want to emulate and all that, well, then, gosh, golly, that just can completely support you throughout your life as you move forward and as you look at the world around you and try to decide how you want to engage. Right, absolutely. We, you, I can't I think we can't underestimate the importance of hearing and reading good stories when we are young and throughout the rest of our lives. Right. Well, you know what, real quickly, I'm going to go ahead and dive into another station identification here. So folks, you are listening to March Twisdale, and Matthew Dickerson is my guest today on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Uh, We have been talking about a whole bunch of cool stuff. If you just caught the show, I highly recommend that you go to uh, marchtwisdale.com and go pick up the show, podcast it, or stream it direct from the Voice of Ashton website and listen to the beginning, because this has been a great hour. And right now, I want to give some thanks to the folks who make Voice of Vashon possible, including Mostly True Vashon Tours. This portion of VOV programming is supported by the Mostly True Vashon Tours. Based on the popular Mostly True History book series, these tours offer a lighthearted history of our islands and show you where historical events actually happened. Along the way, you experience all that Vashon has to offer in the way of local food, spirits, and recreation. For more information and tickets, visit VashonTours.com or the Hinge Gallery located at Vashon Highway and 174th Avenue. Also, VOV support is provided by Puget Sound Energy's Energy Efficiency Heating Weatherization Program. PSE can help you use less energy, save more money. Find out how efficient upgrades to insulation, heating equipment, water heaters, and windows will keep you and your home warmer and your bills lower. You can learn more at PSC.com rebates. Okie dokie. So, oh my goodness, we only have a few minutes left. And is there anything really specific that we have not touched upon yet that we want to? What do you think, Matt? Uh, Well, I can talk about Tolkien for hours and hours. How about C.S. Lewis for a second? 
Oh, sure. I was also going to say I have done a lot of narrative, creative narrative nonfiction writing about trout and ecology. And one exciting piece of news for me recently is I was named artist in residence for Glacier National Park for this oh. summer, for this month of June. Yes, 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 yes. So, okay. So, so tell us a little bit about how that happens and what that means. So I think how it happens or what it means is that I will be spending the month of June living in a cabin in Glacier National Park, right in the park, writing, um, doing creative nonfiction narrative writing, both writing essays and then about my time in the park, but also putting together essays of other other um, experiences in the past couple of years I've spent in national parks and national forests, writing about the importance of wild places, the importance of preserving wild places, the importance of conservation, the importance mm-hmm. of continuing to protect water and air and soil, um, and the importance of public our public lands. So you have, um, this is sponsored by the national park system? Yes, it is. Oftentimes there are local, I think there are local arts institutions that help sponsor and help provide funding, but it is, it, I did apply through the national parks. I guess they had over 150 applicants and wow. they four artists, one for June, one for July, one for, I think, September and one for October. So it's not just writers, it's actually artists in general. Of the last mm. nine artists picked, I'm, I'm actually the only writer. So they have oh. painters, they have photographers, they have quilt makers, they have composers. Mm-hmm. Artists and residence programs work differently at different parks. I think in some parks, the artist is expected to actually give a work of art to the park when they're done. That might be a painting or a photograph that would hang in the park. Right. Um, In other cases, like in Glacier National Park, the expectations are twofold. While I'm there, I will present some public programs. So I'll probably teach a creative writing class, Mm -hmm. and I will um, also give a couple presentations or discussions, uh, maybe readings of my creative works, followed by some discussions of them and of the time in the park. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other is I just had a very specific plan of what I wanted to write about. And it's not that they keep that writing, but rather that the writing I'm doing uh, corresponds with the purpose of the park. So that in right. some sense, my, my writing will help my readers know more about what goes on in the park, what I've observed, mm-hmm. the ecosystems I've, I've, I've observed, um, the history of the park, the trees, the rivers, the trout especially. Which is why the fact that you've already written about trout beforehand, obviously, you know, yes. so now you get to go from the southwest up to the Pacific Northwest and explore trout in a completely different ecosystem. Yes. Yeah, I'll be writing about the um, about cutthroat trout and their history and the influence they've had as they made their way up the Columbia River and be and eventually made it over the Continental Divide, over to the East Slope. Wow. Um, but also about their importance to, to local ecosystems. For the last 15,000 years, mm-hmm. everything from osprey to grizzly bears to mink and, and fisher and even you know pelicans in places have adapted to cutthroat trout as a primary source of protein during certain months of the year. Oh, no. What's going to happen to the other animals that depend yes. upon that? Right. But if you don't exactly. grow up with that, you're like, oh, well, darn, I like that type of fish, but there's some other fish I can eat for dinner tonight. And it's like there's just a stop. You know, you don't even realize the, the ripple effects and the repercussions. So, yeah, 
Ah, what a beautiful planet we live on. It is, and and I and I try to write about it, in some sense, for I guess a general audience, just uh, narratives about what I observe about time there. I mean, I teach creative narrative nonfiction writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I took uh, two years ago. I took nine students with me to Alaska for four weeks and taught a class on nature writing mm-hmm. in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Middlebury College students. Now, where exactly is Glacier National Park? Glacier National Park is um, it's in Montana. Mm-hmm. On the Canadian border, mm-hmm. and it's at some of the headwaters of the Columbia River, oh. right? So head down, you know, just head down and get in your canoe and keep paddling upstream until you can't paddle anymore, <laughs> and, and you'll be right there. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Columbia, also, yeah. The Columbia comes out um, right near the border of uh, Oregon and Washington, right? Exactly. That's right. That's a long river. That is a very long river, and uh, at one point, salmon made it all the way up. All the way across Washington, all the way across Idaho, into you know the edges of Montana, and yeah. um, you know not only native peoples were dependent on that or made great use of it, but mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of other things as well. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of protein being carried up river from the sea, yeah, and deposited in the soil. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think you use the word interwoven, and that's a lot of what I like to to write about. What I like to through narrative and story to communicate. Yeah. So, well, you know, um, uh, fishermen and hunters are oftentimes incredible conservationists. Yeah, and and that turns that that's expressed in how their dollars are spent. Right. 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 In terms of supporting conservation organizations. Yeah, and advocating for them and being aware. Right. Yeah, yeah, raising their children to understand the importance of not mm-hmm. destroying the systems that, that exist Correct. on this planet. Yeah, 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 yeah. In Yellowstone National Park last year, I learned that when lake trout got introduced into Yellowstone Lake, mm. it caused a 95% collapse in the osprey population. Oh, no. It went from 65 nesting pair, pairs of osprey down to five or fewer because the lake trout devastated the cutthroat trout population. Oh, and the osprey probably probably there's a visual difference to the back of those types of fish, and so the osprey well, like couldn't see the new fish. And close, why? it's actually even it's even deeper than that, and literally as well as metaphorically, lake trout are one of the few trout that spawn in deep water in lakes, oh. and cutthroat trout swim up out of the lakes into the streams and rivers. So cutthroat trout, when they're spawning, are available protein. Yeah, uh, for everything. Right. There's osprey, mink, fisher pelicans, uh, lake trout or not. Because they're lake trout. Because they're lake trout. They don't <laughs> spawn up the rivers, exactly. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Did they re- did they fix that? No, it's it's an ongoing, very expensive process. Yellowstone Lake is too big to ever eradicate them. So they have largely a volunteer effort. I guess there's a few days every year where, where you know, thousands of fishermen come in and they try to keep as many of the lake trout as they possibly can. It's actually illegal to catch and release a lake trout. You are legally required to keep or kill any lake trout that you catch wow. in Yellowstone Lake. So, and, and then there's other efforts. They're, tr- they're trying to find out if they can have low-level electrical currents on the spawning beds of the lake trout that will not kill them or not kill other creatures, but I guess prevent the, the eggs from uh, Oh, from my God. So That's all like, sorts of things, but it's not, you know, it's not for the fishing. It's not because of right. humans. It's, it's because of the, it's 15,000 years of a whole ecosystem. Obliterated. That's, yeah, and that's, that's kind of all mutually adapted to 
yeah. the life cycles of each other. So these are exciting things that I that I like to write about. I know. <laughs> well, and it's it's like wow, the amount of energy that human beings are having to put into fixing the problems that yeah. we've created is yeah. is a huge lesson there for us to learn from. But you know what? We are we are out, out of, time. of time. I know, right? Thank you so much, Matt, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I, I always enjoy talking about important stuff, especially yeah. literature. We covered a bunch of subjects. Folks, you can find um, Matthew Dickerson's book, The Gifted, and I'm going to try to pull one of those other books from the medieval series, which gets me all excited as a little historian. They'll be down there at the Vashon Bookshop if you want to drop by and peruse them. And then if you are interested in the wide array of literary work that Matthew has thrown out into the world, you can go to matthewdickerson.net. So Matt, thanks a lot for joining me today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Matthew Dickerson. I'd like to thank you for listening to Prose Poetry and Purpose today, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive social change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.